Good morning. Greetings to each of you in Jesus' name this morning. I've decided for message this morning to continue looking at the Sermon on the Mount. I struggled a little bit because I realized that this morning we start looking at the Sermon on the Mount and our Sunday school lessons for the next number of Sundays. And right where I was at in going through the Sermon on the Mount is right part of the Sunday school lesson for next Sunday. And I struggled with that for a while and then I decided that I'm not going to say everything that could be said and I'm not going to cover the entire lesson for next Sunday and so here we go so my apologies for any overlap and I certainly hope for those of you who will be teaching Sunday school next Sunday that I don't steal any of your thunder hopefully what I have to say can be a springboard for the lesson next week. You can turn, if you'd like, to Matthew chapter 5. We get into this section of the Sermon on the Mount, and all of it has been practical, but I view this as beginning a section in the Sermon on the Mount that begins to get very practical of teaching things that apply to our everyday life, to problems that we all face, to struggles that we all have. Verses 21 through 48 are called the sixth antitheses. Antithesis is a rhetorical contrast of ideas by meanings of parallel arrangements of words, clauses, or sentences. And that's the scholarly dictionary definition. But we see here that six times Jesus says some form of the phrase, you have heard that it has been said. But I say unto you, Jesus gives six teachings that are a contrast between what was given earlier and what he was giving in his day. Some of this may be just a contrast between what was taught in the law of Moses, what God revealed to the people through the law that he gave through Moses. But I think that part of it was a contrast between what was the generally accepted understanding of these teachings and principles. What I mean by that is we can have a rule or a law or whatever and there becomes 
a generally accepted in whatever society or setting, there becomes a generally accepted meaning of that rule. You go out on the road and you drive down the road and the speed limit sign says 55. But there's a generally accepted rule, at least in this state, that if you're under 60, you probably aren't going to get caught. Or if you're on the interstate, you can probably do 75, maybe even push up towards 80 before you're going to risk getting caught. Is that the rule? Is that the law? No. But in society at large, you would find that those, those interpretations are generally accepted by many people. And so I think that some of what Jesus was, was countering here was what had become the generally accepted understanding of, of the law that God had given previously. In other words, there was probably some expansion upon what God had originally intended. I also wanted to spend just a little time thinking about what Jesus was doing by saying that you have heard it has been said, but I say unto you. By saying this, Jesus was letting the people know that he was instituting a change from what they had been taught, from what they had been practicing, from what they considered to be correct. And this change, at least in part, was simply to point them to the root issue of the actions that the law addressed. Jesus was introducing things that dealt with the heart of the matter. In the previous section, we had looked at Jesus saying that he had come to not to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. And so we see him here in these statements fulfilling or completing the previous requirements. But what gave Jesus the authority to do this? Why could he say, you have, you have heard that it has been said, but I say unto you. The law was a sacred manuscript that God had given to, to Moses. Moses had given to the children of Israel. And it would have been, would have been unthinkable to the Jewish people to have even suggested a change to the law. To even suggested that we needed to add something to the law. But we also we need to realize as we think about this that God had promised Moses that there was a time coming when he was going to send another prophet like Moses to the people. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, God said this, and he was speaking to Moses. He said, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee. In other words, 
and will raise them up a prophet like unto you, Moses. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. So what God was, was saying there to Moses is that there's a time coming when there is another prophet who will appear out of your people. And through him, I'm going to speak. And I'm going to, he's going to speak all that I command him to speak. And when Jesus came, there was instances in the New Testament, in the, in the Gospels, where people ask about him. And I think it was when John the Baptist sent his disciples to inquire of Jesus who he was. They ask, are you that prophet who was to come? That was referring to this prophecy of one who would be like Moses. So even though the law came from God, Moses was viewed as the giver of the law. But we see here that God had promised another prophet like Moses... And that was fulfilled in Christ. He had the authority to fulfill the law, to bring it to its completion, to address the, the root issue, the heart issue, rather than just the actions. To bring us to a complete understanding of the principles of, of the law, not just the command itself. At this point, I'd like to read Matthew 21, 5, excuse me, Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry, angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First, be reconciled to thy brother, and then come, and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art thou art in the way with him lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge and the judge deliver thee unto the officer and thou be cast into prison verily I say unto thee thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing here we have Jesus addressing the sixth of the Ten Commandments, which says, Thou shalt not kill. This was a commandment that was foundational to the respect and sanctity of human life. It was based upon the principle that man was created in God's image, that man has a never dying soul, and that is the author of life. It is God alone 
who has the right to give life and to take life from a human. And according to the law of Moses, a person accused of murder was to be tried, and if they were found guilty, they were to be killed without mercy. Uh, there, was, there was strict instructions of how to deal with a murderer, and they were to pay no attention to their pleas for mercy. This goes clear back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, where it says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. So God laid out that principle early on that if a man sheds another man's blood, his, he will pay with his own blood. So according to the law, a person who killed another was in danger of judgment was in danger of judgment for their actions and the outcome for the guilty verdict was death. So that is what Jesus is saying, you have been taught, you have, been, you have heard. But then he says, but I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. First, I want to address the phrase here that says, angry without a cause. That phrase is not found in most of, of the ancient manuscripts, maybe not even in any of the oldest of the of the most ancient manuscripts of the scripture. And so it is viewed as an insertion by people who translated the scriptures. It has actually been attributed in the King James Version to King James who demanded that it was inserted because he wanted an excuse to be able to hold a grudge against his brother. Um, didn't do a whole lot of research on that. But I bring that up because that little phrase in there that says without a cause, I don't believe was part of the original manuscript. And I think that's important because I don't believe that Jesus was giving us a loophole to be angry and hold a grudge if we felt like it was justified. Because I think in pretty much every situation that where I have been tempted to be angry and to hold a grudge against someone, I could use that exception clause. I could say that I have cause. I'm justified. 
And so I believe that Jesus was teaching that whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. I believe that he was putting forth a total prohibition of anger against our brother. Saying that there's no place for us to be angry and to hold grudges against our brothers in the church. Now saying against our brothers seems to maybe give a loophole that allows you to be angry with someone who is outside the church. But if you go back and look at what Jesus said earlier at the end of the Beatitudes, he said that those who, when, when we're mistreated and persecuted and people say all manner of evil against us falsely, he says that then, that when we're treated this way, we're to rejoice and be exceeding glad. And so that doesn't sound like anger either. And so I believe that Jesus is teaching here that anger against our fellow man is not the way of God. Whether it's our brothers and sisters within the church, whether it's in the community, in the workplace, anger is not part of God's way. So why, why would it be wrong to be angry? Why would there be such severe judgment for anger against someone? What is anger? What's the root of anger? Anger is a strong feeling of displeasure and usually of antagonism or rage. This comes from the dictionary. So it's a strong feeling of displeasure. Somebody does something against me and I have a strong feeling of displeasure. And it says usually of antagonism. In other words, I have a lot of displeasure over what somebody does and, and I want to get them back. I want to antagonize that person. <clears throat> when we become angry, we're being judgmental. And we're often, maybe always, defending ourselves because of something that we viewed as an offense to us. To me as a person. Whether it's maybe we were slandered, misunderstood, uh, someone took something from us that was ours, whatever. And we we become angry, we become defensive. That was mine. That was hurtful. Then what's the next step? Well, we, we have those feelings. And then the next step is we want to do something about it. Cain did that when he killed his brother Abel. And I'd like to turn back to Genesis chapter 4 and just read a few verses. 
there in that account. Helps us to see maybe looking back to Genesis to the beginning to see that human nature hasn't really changed that much in 6,000 years. Genesis 4, 5 through 7. But unto Cain, this is God speaking, but unto Cain and his offerings God he had, God had not respect. And Cain felt, fain, Cain was very wroth or very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, why, why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou dost well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou dost not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. I keep reading, I missed one verse. Verse 8, And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. So Cain became angry because him and his brother both made a sacrifice to the Lord. His brother Abel did it in a way that was acceptable and pleasing to God. Cain did it in a way that wasn't accepted. And God, and he, and he was upset. And God said, well, you know, if you do right, you'll be accepted. But rather than accept that and do what God asked, he became angry. And why did he become angry at Abel? You know, we, when we're angry, we do irrational things. It seems like he would have been upset and angry at God. God's the one that didn't accept his sacrifice. But yet, maybe because of of jealousy, I don't know. He became angry at his brother. And then he took the next step. He did something about it. He went out and he killed his brother. As I said, anger causes us to become the judge and desire to carry out the verdict that I feel is just. It causes us to forget that God said that vengeance is mine, I will repay. We place ourselves as judge, judging that my rights and my feelings and my possessions are more important than that other person who has offended or hurt me. We want to take back what was taken. We want to inflict an equal hurt or an equal loss to the person who caused us to suffer. So how do we express these judgments that we have in our minds against those with whom we're angry? Thankfully, we've been taught and we're well-restrained people and we don't just go out and murder people or whatever. But Jesus here talks about the man who says to his brother Raka, which was an Aramaic term of contempt. Uh, that's why it's, it's 
still translated, it hasn't been translated. It's given in their Aramaic word is given. It was, it was a, a word of contempt that could be translated possibly thou fool. The term raka could also be interpreter, interpreted along the lines of a brainless or a worthless person. And then he talks about the person who calls someone else a fool, thou fool. And that term refers to a person more of, a, of loose morals, a person of, of uh, the term I wanted to use slipped my mind, but someone who was morally a fool. And both of these terms are branding a person with a very unkind and very slanderous label. And I ask, are you and I guilty of saying some of these very things or very similar things about people whom we are angry at? We probably all have sinned in that area of calling people by the names of fool, idiot, etc. Putting people down, labeling people in unkind ways that might damage their reputation or damage their reputation in, in somebody's eyes that we're talking to. What Jesus is teaching here is that murder isn't just done with a knife or a gun or a blunt object. Murder, we saw in the account of Cain, begins in the attitudes of the heart. And in the final end, it brings death to the offender. The, the, the person who brought the, the offense. So it begins in the heart, but finds completion in the act. But in between those attitudes of the heart and, and the act, we have this gray area where we think about the offense and we think about what we'd like to do to that person or what we hope happens to them And somehow in that gray area, we, like the people that Jesus was addressing here, think that those thoughts are okay there in between those two things as long as we don't act, as long as we don't get too close to the act. But Jesus was pointing out that that anger, that judgment, that labeling that person with a demeaning label is wrong. It's wrong to kill, and anger is the beginning part of that package. It's where the killing starts, and thus it's as wrong as the act.
the root is no better than the fruit. And just as a murderer will face judgment for his actions, Jesus says that we will face judgment someday for our anger against our brother. And obviously here he's speaking of an eternal judgment because there aren't human courts that try and convict people for simply harboring anger in their heart. He moves on then, verses 23 through 26, to dealing with conflicts between people. Now, I find it interesting in these verses, in these two examples he gives, that the onus or the obligation for making things right is not on the person who is angry, but upon the person who has caused the offense. He says that if you're at the altar ready to make a sacrifice to God, and this is speaking of the Old Testament times Old Testament sacrifice and you're there ready to turn that sacrifice over to the priest and you remember that you have a brother who's upset at you about something you have a brother that holds something against you you're to leave your sacrifice there and go your responsibility to go and strive to make that right. In other words, it's wrong for a person to be angry with his brother, but it's also wrong for us not to endeavor to bring peace when someone is upset at us, when we have done something to wrong someone else. In the Lord's Prayer, as well as several other places, Jesus makes it clear that unforgiveness on our part will prevent God from forgiving us. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So, in like manner as as we forgive others, God you forgive me. What I see in this is that Jesus is clearly trying to impress upon us that while our vertical relationship between us and God is critically important, The horizontal relationship between us and our fellow man is important as well. Broken relationships on that horizontal plane will affect our vertical relationship with God. Whether it's anger in my heart towards someone else or whether we have offended someone else and caused anger indignation, whatever. 
that we have a responsibility while we cannot make that person forgive us we can't make that person release their anger we are called here to do our part to endeavor to clear our relationships with our fellow men on that horizontal plane so our relationship vertically with God can be clear in verse 9 it was in our Sunday school lesson this morning Jesus said blessed are the peacemakers that's what we're talking about here God wants his people to be peacemakers whether we're dealing with a broken relationship with our brother or sister in the church or someone outside the church verses 25 and 26 here instruct us to settle matters with our adversary quickly before things escalate end up in, in, in court before things blow up you know when there's conflict do what we can immediately quickly to subtle disagreements again the focus being on being a peacemaker what keeps us when we have a disagreement with our fellow man our neighbor whoever uh, a business relationship what keeps us so often from quickly settling those disagreements. It could be a variety of things, but often I believe it comes down to money. We want to stand up for our rights. And when it's going to cost us something Financially, whether it's shelling out money or losing money on a business deal or whatever, going the extra mile with our neighbor, when it's going to cost us something to bring about a peaceful resolution, that's when we want to stand up for our rights. possible that we could face a situation where we have a solid case it could stand up in court everybody agrees with us but that's not the direction that Jesus says we should go he says resolve your differences with your adversary quickly over the years in the workplace being as that I have worked in construction and excavation work for over 20 years I've seen a lot of conflicts and headbutting if you want to call it that way between inspectors and government officials and stuff and contractors and it's just part of the territory it seems like but there's been many times where there was conflict and headbutting and and pushing back against requirements 
when all the dust settled, that I had to shake my head and wonder what was really gained. If someone stood their ground, the job was delayed. Maybe they proved their point, but all the delays, all the ill feelings, etc. I've shaken my head many times and thought, was it worth it? What was gained? Rather than just moving ahead and finding a peaceful, quick resolution, even though maybe up front would have cost me something. Now, I do want to recognize that it's easy to talk about those things and how we should react and relate in those situations. But when you're in the heat of the moment, it can be very difficult to make the right decisions. Hindsight is often better than foresight. But there's a lesson to be learned here as we deal with our fellow man in those types of situations. The thrust here is to be a peacemaker, to bring reconciliation, no matter within the church or without. God has given us his only begotten son. He sent his son to this sin-cursed earth to suffer and to die for you and me. Why? It was so he could bring reconciliation between mankind and himself. That's what God gave to bring reconciliation. What are you willing to give? What am I willing to give to bring reconciliation with our fellow man? If we go through life with anger or bitterness towards others, go through life doing nothing to bring peace where we have offended or, or, or caused problems or where we might face conflicts that are maybe not even of our own making. You know, that happens sometimes. Through no fault of our own, we find ourselves in the middle of a conflict. If we, if we in those situations do nothing to make peace we're taking our own way and not God's way and we'll bring reproach on the gospel of Jesus Christ who came to bring reconciliation who came and set an example of being a peacemaker one thing that I wanted to bring out for a close that I think is important as we consider these things, is to remember the importance of prayer as we deal with these things. Whether we are struggling with our attitude towards someone else or struggling to know how to relate and bring peace where there is conflict, prayer is an important tool. Because as we pray for others in these situations, we'll find that it's, it has a way of changing the situation, possibly, 
maybe softening the other person's heart, bringing about a change of their attitude. But yet, as we pray for others, it changes our hearts. It helps us to see that other person in a different light. And it's hard to pray for someone, genuinely pray for them and for their well-being and for God to work in their life and maintain an ill feeling towards that person. So prayer helps maybe to change our attitude even more than the attitude of the one that we're praying for. So in closing, I'd like to challenge you that we go forth from here this morning determined to be peacemakers and to rid ourselves of anger and of slander, Say, calling people names that would demean them, would, would lower them in the eyes of, of other people. Do everything to bring, we can to bring peace in all of our relationships in the church and in the world. May God bless you as you go forth and make peace in a world of conflict. God bless you.